Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hi, and welcome to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordoletto, and as always, I'm joined by Dalon James and Blake Evans. Dalon and Blake, how are you two? Very well, fellas. Very nice to be with you today. I am doing fantastic. It is so great to see you all as usual. You'll notice that the strongest member of our team is not with us today, Dr. Molly Siegel-Cornfield. So special shout out to Molly if you're listening to this on the back end. We miss you. But we have lots of good science to talk about today. So we're starting off with a non-traditional review article from FNS Reviews today. We're looking at current options to lower the cost of IVF. You may be wondering, man, IVF is expensive. I wish I lived in a mandated state like I do in Massachusetts. But for a lot of patients, they're paying out of pocket and figuring out how to save money. Treatment add-ons, I think, is always a benefit and something that should be increasingly more cost-conscious about. This paper is a wonderful one from my friend, Dr. Bruce Pyre. But I'm going to let my other friend, Dr. Blake Evans, tell you a little bit more about it. Thank you so much, Pietro. So the title of this paper from FNS Reviews this month is Current Options to Lower the Cost of In Vitro Fertilization, a Comprehensive Review. First author is Austin Gardner at UAB and senior author, as you'd mentioned, Dr. Bruce Pierre at the Madigan Army Medical Center. So although there is an increasing number of patients that seek infertility treatments, their services can be difficult to access largely due to cost and or lack of coverage. So I did the liberty of looking at the SART.org website for some general numbers. And the numbers of all cycles of initiated egg collection has increased from about 90,000 in 2004 to 150,000 to 2019. And even with coverage, patients are left making difficult choices who need additional IVF cycles because often the coverage can be capped when they do have coverage. So because of this, cost causes many couples to prematurely quit IVF cycles or pursue cheaper options. And these financial strains cause some patients to feel the need to risk multiple gestation pregnancies to quote unquote, improve their chances and minimize the total number of cycles that they need to undergo. Uh, This is a thought process that I almost daily have to explain to patients that more embryos doesn't really improve live birth rates overall, particularly in the younger patient population, and not to mention all the medical complications, hospital bills, and even just the cost of multiples throughout their life is way more money than the patient would ever pay for an IVF cycle. And so this review focuses on the methods that may lower cost of IVF, but also interventions needed in areas of awareness. This was a literature search that was conducted assessing over 100 manuscripts that all discuss low-cost IVF with regards to models for IVF funding, laboratory factors, IVF stimulation, lab and or medication cost, and also personalized approaches that may reduce cost. So I'm going to elaborate on each of these categories and what they found. So looking first at current models for IVF funding, the first state to enact mandated insurance coverage was, can either of you guys guess? What was the first state to mandate coverage? You got three seconds. No? You guys aren't going to guess? Patriot, are you listening right now? <laughs> I'm guessing. I'm letting Dalen take a crack at it. <laughs> I'm saying Hawaii. I'm going to go with Oklahoma. Blake Evans is home state. No, unfortunately, not Oklahoma. Maryland. In the 1980s, it was Maryland was the first state 
Several states have followed. Um, sadly, not Oklahoma has not followed where I'm at. Um, and this has shown an increase in the usage of IVF and overall the decrease in the mean number of embryos transferred. So again, look back at some SART data showing that over the course of about 20 years, the average number of embryos transferred in someone less than 35 was about two to three 20 years ago, and now is about one, fortunately, and the twin risk has decreased from about 27% to 5%. Uh, there are a few factors that, of course, go into this uh, number, but a lot of it is coverage for IVF. So although mandates exist, there's still several exclusions that apply. For example, small businesses are excluded from coverage in these mandated states. And believe it or not, a patient's BMI, which was surprising to me, I did not realize that. So despite infertility being recognized as a basic health need, still the majority of states and insurance companies do not provide coverage of IVF and is a major determinant of proceeding with care. The authors also looked at laboratory factors. So laboratory costs are about 50% of a total cycle cost. The authors discuss a few factors that can potentially reduce these costs. So for one, not overutilizing ICSI for non-male factor infertility. Another thing that they looked at is going straight to IVF or ICSI for those with a varicocele or obstructive azospermia is not necessarily cost-effective for all patients, and this is something to be considered. They also discuss the implementation or utilization of intravaginal culture. This is where a patient places a small incubation chamber vaginally containing the sperm and the oocytes rather than utilize the IVF lab cost. Uh, this is a currently utilized technology. However, its data are conflicting regarding its efficacy compared to conventional IVF. And the published data on cost comparison are not existent uh, as discussed by the authors. Another thing that the authors mention is the utilization of PGTA. This is something that's not cost-effective for all patients, but may be cost-effective for carefully selected RPL patients or those with advanced reproductive age. They also talk about IVF stimulation. They discuss a couple of things to consider, such as natural cycle IVF or minimal stimulation IVF. Um, the benefits that they discuss with natural cycle IVF is that it might provide a lower cost and lower OHSS risk although at a lower clinical ongoing pregnancy rate per cycle. And yes, these patients may pay much less due to fewer medications, but the need for multiple egg retrievals to get pregnant and all of the inherent risk that is associated with each egg retrieval, such as anesthesia, risk to surrounding structures within the pelvis, et cetera, compared to just one egg retrieval for standard IVF is certainly something to consider. And they talk about minimal IVF, or also known as low-intensity IVF stimulation, or considerations as well. This is, for example, when you take oral agents like Clomid or Famara, plus or minus a low-dose gonadotropin. And they talk about how this can potentially lower cost savings, particularly for patients with diminished ovarian reserve that may have achieved a very similar response if you were to just dump gonadotropins into their body in very, very high doses. So that's also something that they consider. The next area that they look at is laboratory and medication costs. There are some studies that support doing ultrasound only. So for example, you only do one blood draw the day of trigger shot, but otherwise you don't get any blood draws throughout the IVF stem cycle. And there are some studies that support that there's similar outcomes when you do this, believe it or not. And then another medication cost savings, and Pietro, you and I have talked about this before and have uh, done this to some degree, but use of oral progestin agents, such as medroxyprogesterone acetate, rather than GnRH antagonists for pituitary suppression. Um, so as I mentioned, I, I've done this a couple of times. Uh, Pietro, I know you have as well. I know that we talked 
earlier about um, shameless plugs for ourselves in this podcast, but I will say I did do a cost analysis on this subject when I was a fellow. Um, and we found that about if you're planning for a freeze all cycle, not a fresh transfer, then it saves about $2,000 if you utilize hydroxyprogesterone acetate to suppress the LH surge instead of GnRH antagonists. So certainly something to consider. And then the last couple of topics they look at is unexplained fertility. They mentioned the coveted study that we all know, the Ryan Dollar et al. study or the FAST study from FNS in 2010, where it looks at the lower cost per delivery of about $10,000 if you go straight from ovarian stimulation and IUI to IVF and skipping doing three cycles of FSH and IUI in between. Uh, we also know now that gonadotropin cycles come with a very high risk of multiples with no overall improvement in success rates. I mean, this is not considered a recommended therapy in patients with unexplained fertility. There are actually several other things that the authors discuss, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go over all of them, but as always, I recommend our listeners to go back and read through the study, but they do delve into other topics such as obesity before undergoing IVF, PCOS patients before they undergo IVF, tubal reanastomosis compared to IVF in regards to patient age, oral adjuvants for diminished ovarian reserves such as CoQ10, DHEA, and growth hormone, and also polypectomy before IVF. So in conclusion, the authors discuss how that there are several states lacking coverage for IVF, and patients may not be able to proceed with this treatment or may terminate treatment prematurely because of financial barriers. Approaches involving minimal stem, efficient or alternative drug administration, and alternative medication preparations may provide reduced cost and possibly similar outcome results with conventional IVF. And lastly, personalized approaches to medication dosing and procedure selection on the basis of specific infertility diagnoses may reduce IVF treatment cost and lead to more efficient cycles. So as always with these review papers, a lot of info to unpack, but I really thought this was a nice thought-provoking paper. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, I live in a non-mandated state, so my patients are actually very commonly asking these questions and uh, very commonly seeking out, you know, you'll talk with them too about traveling long distances or going to clinics because there are clinics out there that recognize that IVF is so expensive and they will promote themselves as having a quote unquote lower cost, but then you get in their door and then they'll have you pay tons of money on medications or IV infusions that don't have evidence to back them up and then ultimately hike up the price of what you pay anyway. So very interesting paper. What do you guys think about it? Well, let me ask first, as someone who obviously doesn't have a foot in the clinic, I, I would ask you guys where we're trending, right? Because to me, uh, where there's a lot of may maybes in terms of how this could uh, improve or lower the barrier cost there, and they're all great ideas, and I applaud the authors. I just wonder, like, if we do a reality check here, there, there's global uh, factors here, which I would say the high demand, unmet demand, which is only increasing, and also the rise of the kind of commercial or storefront type medicine apparatus and integration with assisted reproduction. So I would ask you, given those overarching influences and the whole, you know, capitalist commercial, I think major influence there, where do you think we're trending? Are we trending towards lower costs because we're improving you know, the, the efficiency of the procedures are, are we staying at the same cost and just, you know, getting a lot more volume? I think where there's two forks that are kind of 
moving forward. There's definitely a small contingent of reproductive endocrinologists that I think are adding things on to cycles with the hope that we can increase clinical efficiency of each cycle and success, but not a strong evidence-based stuff like pre-implantation genetic testing, a lot of the reproductive immunology stuff that just doesn't have the strongest evidence base, but is out-of-pocket expenses for patients. And I think you see a lot of that, which is unfortunate, but I think there's also a small contingent that are really trying to be thoughtful about how to make IVF access more of a thing. And I think ways that you increase access in non-mandated states are things exactly like Blake talked about. Being very thoughtful about what medicines you use, particularly if you're freezing all, doing genetic testing, if you're freezing eggs, or an oral progestin is a great example of something that is patient-friendly, cost-conscious, and you never hear this, but it is evidence-based in reproductive medicine. There are now multiple RCTs in multiple different patient groups that you can replace an injectable GnRH antagonist with an oral progestin and get the same response, if not better, in certain patient groups. So these are the kinds of studies that I think we need, not only the fundamental science that moves us in a different clinical direction, but also papers like Blake's where you have a cost analysis and really highlight the issue. Like this is a way to save money and preserve outcomes. If we're doing special plugs, FAST-T trial, Blake, that was a great paper. That's a Boston IVF paper, I'll remind our listeners. Um, there was a recent update in FNS about what happens to those patients uh, years later. What is their long-term reproductive outcomes beyond the FAST-T trial? Just kind of cool and encourage people to check out if you're familiar with FAST-T already. Yeah, in addition to all of that too, I think that... Um, access to care kind of plays a role in this as well. Uh, you know, access to care is is a problem. Uh, I, I definitely experienced that in my state as well, um, in the surrounding states in the Midwest. And so patients will, I don't want to say settle, but they'll, for lack of a better term, they'll go to clinics that promote being a lot cheaper and having cheaper prices. And the grass isn't always greener at these places. You know, they may be staffed by someone that's not an REI. And so those things are other examples that are kind of on the rise to go back to your question, Dalon, uh, to increase not only access, but reportedly or supposedly cost. But uh, ultimately, these places are oftentimes even more expensive than what the patient would have paid for with an REI, but they don't want to have to wait for a long time and may find these other clinics as well. So um, that's a problem I think that's on the rise. I know that's a whole nother topic, but that's also something too that wasn't necessarily discussed in this paper. Thanks, Blake. That's a great article. And I think a non-traditional one that we don't see a lot of. And I think it's a great article if you are early in practice, like some of us are, but also trainee trying to sort out what you're going to do once you're in practice that's cost-conscious, evidence-based, and, and thoughtful for patients. Um, Dalon, we're going to pivot to you and, and I think continuing with the shameless plug theme of this month's podcast, but you have a paper straight out of across the street from Wild Cornell Medicine looking at sperm and their contribution to this whole thing that we call IVF. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about it, Dylan? Well, let me start by saying the the work was done when you were still here, Pietro. So I think you certainly must have taken a hand in the work, at least as inspiration. I mean, you're such a, an inspiring force uh, wherever you go. But also, I mean, what do you want me to do? Uh, FNS Science is an excellent journal, and this is excellent science. So I think it's a good fit, and I'm happy to report it. And I'm staying in the vein of efficiency, kind of. Uh, a little bit skewed, but I'll get back to it. I've got this story, as you said, that that aims to address the patients that have poor outcomes despite relatively positive parameters. And as you said, it's a bit of home cooking for my own center led by Giampiero Palermo, inventor of ICSI and a titan in the study of male factor infertility. Now, historically, of course, the optics are always that 
Uh, infertility is the burden of women, attributed to women, and that makes sense because they bear the, the visible burden of the reproductive process. And although we've known that infertility can arise from dysfunction in men, the scope of male factor infertility and subfertility has only been revealed in recent decades by the increased scrutiny that comes with IVF. In fact, it's estimated that as many as half of all couples struggling with infertility can cite male factor as a root cause, and 2% of all men exhibit suboptimal sperm parameters. That's a number that's on the rise uh, increasingly. Um, and whether that be low concentration, poor motility, or abnormal morphology. These days, though, thanks to amazing technical innovations, many of them developed by Dr. Palermo's group, most cases of male factor infertility are treatable. Very low concentrations, impaired morphological characteristics, etc., can be treated with ICSI. Uh, and even scarce sperm cells recovered from TESI from the seminiferous tubules of non-obstructive azospermic individuals can and have been used to successfully inseminate an oocyte. But some of the toughest cases are those of couples that fail in spite of having a female partner of relatively young age with no signs of infertility and a male partner with acceptable semen parameters. These patients can leave REIs and laboratory staff scratching their heads, but they also represent an opportunity to interrogate more subtle causes of male factor infertility. Uh, and nowadays, with the enhanced resolution of testing and increased scrutiny of sperm parameters in clinical practice, the assessment of DNA integrity of sperm has become more rigorous and is on the rise. This practice, the evaluation of sperm chromatin fragmentation, or SCF, provides a measure of DNA breaks in sperm and can help guide treatment decisions in these patients, specifically whether to use ejaculated or surgically retrieved sperm. Now, ostensibly, this work from uh, the Palermo Group aims to assess the value of sperm chromatin fragmentation as a tool for guiding treatment in those head-scratcher couples that fail despite adequate semen parameters and no ev evidence of female infertility. But I would say that they took it a lot further than that. First off, the study assembled a pretty large cohort of patients, I would say. This is uh, 168 cycles and 78 couples that fit this rare mold, uh, something that I, I really think could only be done at a, a major academic center with a high volume of tough cases. These patients following a failed ICSI cycle had sperm evaluated for SCF, sperm chromatin fragmentation, and showed significant levels. So right there showing that link. But more notable for me was what they did next. For those 76 males, all of whom showed moderate or severe sperm chromatin fragmentation, a subsequent cycle was done with specially curated sperm. 13 of those 76 underwent TESI, and the other 63 had their sperm sample enriched using microfluidic sperm selection. Now, this is a device that uses a mesh-based microfluidic system to select only those spermatozoa with the highest progressive motility. Sperm selection in these patients, either by TESI or the microfluidics, had a remarkable benefit. Cycle to cycle, the intervention increased pregnancy rates from 16.5% to almost 40%. And this was a real stunner for me. Reduced pregnancy loss tenfold from 50 above 50% down to 5%. I'm really bottom lining the results there. And I, I recommend, as Blake uh, alluded to also, have a look at this paper because they really went deep on the controls. A lot of rigor was added to the, the experiments using this cohort to account for female factors. So they went really deep to try and verify these results and make sure there was no association with 
female factor is not a new concept. And Palermo's group has already demonstrated the utility of this microfluidic sperm selection. So maybe we aren't like really breaking new ground here, but I appreciated the, the scale of this study. The clear linkage of this sperm chromatin fragmentation to outcome, the depth and rigor of the controls, and more than anything else, getting back to this efficiency thing. I'm convinced now that this microfluidic sperm selection approach could provide a low-cost alternative to TESI, and that could be a boon, at least in these tough cases where there seems to be reduced sperm quality is not revealed by deficits in concentration, motility, or morphology. So as I started, this is staying within the vein of efficiency and novel methods that are being developed to obviate these more expensive and you know, stressful and risky approaches like surgical interventions. So guys, tell me what you think. This is uh, another fortuitous um, paper that we're talking about because Blake, I think you've also published on this topic about looking at testicular extraction of sperm and DNA fragmentation. You know, when I think about using TESI versus using microfluidics, I have to imagine most men would prefer a microfluidic approach. But there's some caveats here. The microfluidic approach adds some cost to the way we normally select sperm. Typically, most labs will use some form of a density gradient or swim up for sperm selection ahead of IVF or XC. Microfluidics adds the additional cost of the actual device, and there's several devices on the market. And the one that Cornell uses is the Zymocht microfluidic system. The benefit of using a system like that is that it will reduce the amount of actual bench time that your um, embryologist or your andrologist is going to be there managing the sperm selection. It's kind of set it and forget it. You come back a little while later and the sperm that have made its way through these porous channels are much fewer in number. So you got to have a decent sperm concentration to start off with. You can't start off with men who have oligospermia. That's going to make it tough to have enough sperm to be able to, to use. But once you select those sperm, they're good data from Cornell that's both internal and published data to suggest that that sperm is going to be a lot less fragmented, similar to what you would see for testicular sperm extraction. Now, we've looked at this in a bunch of different ways from a, when you use this sperm, do you make better embryos? Do you make less aneuploid embryos? Do you reduce miscarriage rate? And depending on how you look at it, yeah, there's actually some data in, in both of these directions for these different patient outcomes. I think we understand very little about DNA fragmentation. Not all DNA fragmentation is created equal. There's definitely some single-stranded DNA breaks. There's double-stranded DNA breaks. Relative contribution of one versus the other to these different outcomes, I think, is still left to be determined. But I think it's a really cool way to select sperm with a lot of nice basic science data now starting to see a little bit more clinical data to suggest that there may be a role for it, particularly in situations for elevated DNA fragmentation. The inverse is Blake's option, which is you have to go into the testicle and get sperm. Blake, do you want to comment on that and how that paper was received when you were published it? Because I saw a lot of it on social media, people talking about ways to get less fragmented sperm. So yeah, this is, it's a retrospective study. You're going to not really find a good cohort of men that are willing to be randomized into a testicular biopsy, some of which are sham biopsies, some of which are the true biopsy. So a lot of this is retrospective, and it is a paper that we are still working on with the Shady Grove Fertility Group, but it is one of those that it did show improvement in patients who had multiple failures and that are non-azospermic men. But one of the things, uh, the, the criticisms of this paper, and a lot of these papers too, because you can't do a good randomized controlled trial, 
unless these men emerge that decide they are okay with being randomized into sham biopsies. But uh, regression to the mean is certainly a phenomenon that, and even that was something that I questioned when I was reading this paper too. Definitely uh, commend the authors, and this is a fantastic paper, and there's a lot more work coming out on DNA fragmentation. And it's one of those things that we're continuing to look into because it, it does show promise. But you know, when you look at these cycles and you have someone with a failed cycle and then they undergo testicular uh, aspiration or whatever the testicular extraction for utilized for ICSI, is this a regression to the mean or is it truly a phenomenon in which you're having improvement from testicular sperm? So I believe it's probably the former in which you are having an improvement because low DNA fragmentation, but uh, we're just, we need more and more data to emerge. And this paper is certainly helping contribute to that. Um, another thing that I've always been curious about with DNA fragmentation is, is this a, a binary test, meaning yes or no, it's elevated versus is it a continuous issue in that? Is 28% fragmentation more meaningful or less meaningful than 50% fragmentation? And I don't really think we know the answer to that. And Dayline, I know you mentioned there was a moderate or severe uh, fragmentation there. So what does that mean? You know, does it does it really matter? Uh, but regardless, I do think that we are um, still finding out more and more about DNA fragmentation as data continue to emerge. It does show some promise contrary to the ERA. I said it, I put it out there. Sorry, I said it. But DNA fragmentation is something that I think that as things continue or we do more and more research, it's going to show promise. And this study certainly helps contribute to that. Yeah. In regard to the moderate and severe, the benefit was specifically conferred to that moderate. So I guess there is kind of the idea that if it's not so bad, then the benefit could be even better. Um, but yeah, just to reiterate, I want to take it back to the device. I know this isn't a, a totally novel thing, but I think now the totality of the evidence, the rationale for doing it vis-a-vis -vis the BERMP DNA fragmentation, and also, also the method, and here's some of the results showing the benefit. And to your point, uh, Pietro, earlier about the cost, I think what defines all technologies is that with time, those costs are reduced as efficiency of production and use is increased. So I envision... Uh, a time where the, the cost of this is on par with normal selection, at least when you take into account, as you said, the reduced bench time of the of the expert that's selecting. So I like to think that this is really uh, part of this, I think, movement towards innovation and really representative of what we, we're so accustomed to seeing in ART, where it just moves at the bleeding edge and so fast. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned too, I mean, this is a a very inexpensive test. We too use the Zymod at OU and, you know, the data showing less DNA fragmentation in the sperm that's utilized from Zymod is there. And so if that shows improvement, then great. It is an overall very low cost um, intervention that our patients can utilize. It's non-invasive. You don't have a testicular biopsy. So something that is certainly reassuring. Well, let's make a, a hard pivot to a different unrelated topic that I did not publish, nor did my center publish. But this is a paper coming out of FNS reports entitled Timing of Testosterone Discontinuation in ART Outcomes in Transgender Patients, a Cohort Study. This is a paper by Drs. Mohamed Albar's first author and senior author, Kimberly Liu, out of the University of Toronto in Canada. So most of you probably know this, but it's worth reiterating, nearly half of all transgender patients report a desire to have children. And of these transgender patients with ovaries, a little over a third would actually consider freezing eggs if that were an option that's available to them. 
However, the biggest roadblock that transgender patients have identified to proceeding with fertility preservation is the need for testosterone discontinuation coming off those gender-affirming medications. And there's really no guidelines that specify the duration or even the necessity of testosterone discontinuation beyond some biologic plausibility and some concern for teratogenicity. This was a study that was retrospective in nature conducted at a single fertility center, the high volume academic center between 2019 and 2021 in Canada, looking at consecutive transgender men who are seeking fertility preservation. These transgender male patients had been taking androgens for at least a month when they were included in the study. And all patients who had initiated testosterone therapy stopped before their fertility preservation cycle was started. This was the standard recommendation at the time for that clinic, and they recommended discontinuation of at least four weeks before ovarian stimulation. However, some patients that were included had stopped testosterone earlier. They did not require patients to have a resumption of menses before starting a cycle. These were all antagonist cycles with either HCG or Lupron or dual triggering, in case you were wondering. Their primary outcome was the association between testosterone discontinuation duration, in terms of weeks, and the number of mature eggs retrieved. The other covariates evaluated were there was the important secondary outcomes like patient age, AMH, antral follicle count, and the duration that they had actually been on testosterone. In total, 18 patients uh, were included in the study, and the mean age at cycle start was right around 27 years of age. And the mean time on testosterone therapy had been 44 months prior to coming off of it for at least four weeks. The mean AMH in this patients is recorded in picomoles per liter. So if you guys are fast out with that conversion to, to Canada, it's 27.2. And the median time off of testosterone until the start of ovarian stimulation was right around seven and a half weeks, but with an interquartile range as low as 4.3 weeks and as high as 20.7 weeks. So a decent range here. The median total number of cryopreserved eggs for this cohort was 7.5. There was no significant association between testosterone discontinuation duration and the number of mature eggs that were retrieved. There was no statistical significance between the age and the number of mature eggs retrieved or between the age and the total number of eggs retrieved. There was also no association between the duration on testosterone and the number of mature eggs that are retrieved. Now, you may be wondering, what do I do with this information? Now, I have patients like this that come through my clinic, and the number one question that I get is, do I need to stop the testosterone, yes or no? And I think right now, in the absence of overwhelmingly convincing data regarding safety, or the reproductive potential of these eggs or embers that we create from this hyperandrogenic environment, I'm still recommending patients come off of it. However, if patients choose to stay on it or are well-informed about the risks and the benefits, I do allow them to stay on it. Now, in terms of discontinuation, I think it's a little bit variable. My strategy typically involves patients coming off of the testosterone, and I'll check weekly total testosterone levels until they come back down into the cisgender female range. And at that point, I'll start ovarian stimulation. I don't wait for a period. It typically can take a little bit longer if they are have been on testosterone or using high doses for long periods of time. But for the men and women that I see that have been on it for kind of your traditional couple months, couple years, typically within a matter of a handful of weeks, you start to see those testosterone levels come back to a cisgender range. And that's when I'll start any ovarian stimulation. Counsel patients with this data, with data from Boston IVF, from Angela Leung, that they can expect very similar outcomes in terms of the number of eggs that they retrieve, the maturity rates, the fertilization rates of these eggs if they're creating embryos. Um, all of this, I think, provides reassurance that we can do this. This is safe. It's just a matter of getting the word out to, to docs who are doing some of this um, gender-affirming medicine that this is an option for them and that we can use shared decision-making to decide when to stop testosterone, if to stop testosterone, to accomplish their goals of family building. 
Blake, do you do something differently with patients on testosterone who are trying to conceive? I have a very similar approach to what you'd mentioned too. I mean, my preference is to have them come off of it and then stimulate them, but very similar to your approach. I think this is really reassuring data. I think this is a great study. Um, Of course, having a median number of 7.5 mature oocytes, we have to, of course, counsel these patients. You're probably going to need a few cycles depending on what your family building desires are. Of course, with just 7.5 mature oocytes, we're not going to say, yep, you're good. Go on and you're fine. Get back on your testosterone. But that's something to also keep in in consideration. If these patients want to go back to back and do back to back cycles, then it's important for them to note that you might have several more months off of testosterone than you anticipated if that is the route that we're going. I will are you, Blake, are you talking duo stim? Some may say, put in a plug there. But yes, but that would be a way for them to get back on their testosterone relatively quickly and obtain an optimal amount of mature oocytes for their family building desires. So let me ask you this. I mean, first of all, I'll just say we talked about the interface of medicine and tech earlier there with with ART. But here, I, I love this, the interface of medicine and societal questions. It's also ART. You got to love this field. Um, but a couple of questions. One, you know, you talk about 7.5 oocytes not being enough. Uh, so in terms of the getting off testosterone, for your patients, do you find that that's really a traumatic experience? I mean, you would imagine that a lot of dysphoria associated, but how willing do you think your patients would be to get, get off testosterone? And if they were to choose to, to not get off testosterone and, and that was reconcilable with uh, ovarian stimulation, do you think we need to go a little bit further in terms of qualifying the competence of the embryos? Do you think it's enough just to say that the eggs are getting mature? Is there enough of at least a rationale for a potentially negative influence of the testosterone on on actual embryos? What do you guys think there? I think the testosterone tends to be a major sticking point. It's not the only sticking point. I think creating an environment in your clinic that's um, accommodating, that doesn't always include um, cisgender heteronormative language in your documentation, in your um, materials that you have in your office, and the way that patients are treated or phone calls are answered. There's definitely the component of having adaptability to not always use transvaginal ultrasounds. I think that can be a major sticking point for a lot of trans men. They prefer to have abdominal ultrasound if they can at all avoid it. Um, Even abdominal retrieval, I've had patients ask me for if that's an option. So I think the coming off the testosterone is part of it, but I think having the bits and pieces to make sure that they feel well supported in their experience and kind of soften the blow of having to come off of this medication that they've so longed to be on that have kind of affirmed the way that they feel on the inside. It's a shared decision-making thing. I think it's bread and butter shared decision-making. And almost always, I think I've only ever had one patient who's opted to stay on the testosterone and haven't cycled yet, but most all of them prefer to come off of it in the absence of really reassuring safety data because they want this to work well and they want healthy children on the back end. And I just don't know that we have enough data to say that staying on it is the safest approach. Yeah, exactly. Pietro, very well put. I mean, I will admit that I don't know if in my my first thought is that there's little to no data about embryo quality in these patients and just them coming back and having embryo transfers. Maybe there are some studies, but I'm unaware of a whole lot of them. But what does the testosterone, if any, have any impact on embryo quality? I mean, we have a, a decent amount of studies with oocyte numbers, oocyte quality, but 
after that with the embryo, pregnancy rates in these patients that come back for their embryo transfer one day, I think the data is a little bit more scarce. But kudos that these authors are getting this data published. It's nice to see it. It's nice to see it in FNS reports. And I think it adds to the growing body of literature that we need to just better inform our counseling for these patients. All right, well, guys, it's been great to be back with you. A lot of good science in the report, science and reviews, and I think a really nice spread of, um, of clinical interest and some solid basic science and economics. Conversation continues beyond this podcast. You can always be listening to our FNS on air podcast where we run through our favorite articles from the uh, monthly issues from Maine Fertility and Sterility. You can also be following us on our social media accounts. We're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And one cool thing I want to let all our listeners know about is that starting March 1st, probably by the time you're already listening to this, there's going to be a big change to the FNS Dialogue website. The FNS Dialogue website is going to be sunsetted because what we've realized is the initial idea of having a place where people can comment and have a discussion on a second website just didn't really pan out when social media took off and most of this discussion was already happening on social media. So we're going to bring FNS Dialogue back to the FNS main page and we're going to keep the best parts, which are the Consider This articles. These are original articles that do not fit the mold of a traditional research article, don't have a structured abstract, don't have an extra long reference list. And we're going to give them prime billing on the FNS website. These are articles where people can now submit four different categories. We're going to be calling them Consider the Ethics, where you can talk a little bit about something that's been irking your mind, ethical related to our field. Consider the moment, something that's topical, something that's happening in current events that you want to talk about, be it Roe versus Wade, be it what's happening with abortion restrictions, um, personhood amendments. These are all things that we'd like to see people talk about and discuss. There's also going to be a Consider this Idea, which is a moment for hypothesis generation. People who have an idea or something that they want to throw out as novel or interesting and use uh, the general public as a sounding board. And finally, this is a cool section called Consider This Paper, which is an opportunity for people to talk about a paper that they saw in a different journal. Um, there's obviously great stuff that comes out in the New England Journal, BMJ, The Lancet, and the other peer journals that will not be named because they're direct competitors. But if you have see something that is interesting there and you want to wax poetic or editorialize on it, this is an avenue for people to do that. All of these articles will live on the FNS main page. They will not be behind a paywall. They will be imminently shareable on social media so we can get the word out as far as humanly possible for people who are not FNS subscribers. So be on the lookout for that. You'll be able to submit it through this traditional FNS editorial manager steps as you do. These are articles that are going to be under 2,000 words and under five references. So we look forward to your submissions. We look forward to maybe highlighting some of those on this podcast. But until we meet next time, hope you enjoy this episode and the rest of the FNS podcast episodes. Thanks and see you guys next time. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.